Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I am your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Gilbert, Arizona. And uh, we have finally hit that stretch of time in uh, the best time of the year in Arizona where the temperatures have dropped. I think today's the high is 83, which for us is like, you know, 20 degrees cooler than it was three or four days ago. So we we will take it. We're excited about it. And uh, best time of the year coming up. My wife loves Halloween. So that's kind of always something that she's able to look forward to. So if you're listening to our podcast or watching us on YouTube, and this is the first time that you're here, welcome. We're glad you're here. What we do is we share stories of business owners uh, each week or every other week where we allow them to come in and talk about what it is that they do inside of their business. And sometimes it's a business that you're familiar with, and sometimes it's a, a first like today. The reality is we've got uh, an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker on the show today, so we're excited about that. Paul Taubleib is here on the show on the show today. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very excited to be here. Yeah. So, Paul, you're the CEO of Taubleib Films, and like I mentioned, you're an Emmy Award winner. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can actually see the Emmys behind him on the shelf there. And he's, you know, obviously that's uh, one of those things that people may set out to to do in their career and just just never accomplish it. And the fact that you've got what is it four on the shelf there? Yeah, yeah. So that that's crazy. So tell us a little bit about that. What when you were a kid, did you set out to win an Emmy? When you were a teenager, did you think I'm I'm going to do this? What what led you down this path? That's that's a big question. When you think about when you're going back to when I was a kid. Long time ago, but I never, I, I always had an affinity for reading when I was younger. I remember, I'm sure if you've heard stories like this, when my parents said time to go to bed, I would take a flashlight under the covers and I was just loved reading and to the, and that led me into English and journalism, which was my background. I don't think I ever set out to win an Emmy. I've also been nominated and won many other film festivals over the years now, but I've always been looking for the balance between creating a way of a lifestyle to live, in other words, a business, with my passion for, which is basically some form of storytelling. And based in the written word, then creating a visual word and creating a business and a lifestyle around it. Yeah, so I have a son that graduated from journalism school last last May. His was sports journalism, but still a a journalist and and a writer. How did you make that transition from saying, you know, this is the written word to... Okay, now we're going to capture this on film. Well, my story, and it's funny, not so much by, by design, but the way, just the way my career has gone is I was involved in surfing. And as a, as a recreational person, when I was a little kid, my parents took me to a movie called The Endless Summer when I was very little. And I was so young, I didn't really understand there was a difference between the guys traveling around the world surfing and my father, who was a grind them out CPA. They were just adults to me. So I thought, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be a surfer. That certainly looks better than dealing with spreadsheets. And, that, and I was a swimmer, so I was very comfortable in the water. 
And so that just let everything in my career has all one way or another been involved around that passion or that experience and who, what I am. And so I've done a lot of things outside of surfing and some of the awards I've done are for films that don't have to do with surfing. Some do was related to that. But so I, then I became a journalist, worked and wrote about sports. I like kind of like your son. I was a sports journalist. I also did some straight journalism, but mainly a lot, a lot of sports. And because of that, when VHS first came along and I was a young journalist, Surf movies used to only be seen in what they called a four wall environment back in the day when they would go rent a VFW hall and everybody would come and we'd watch the movies. And suddenly VHS came along and surf videos came out and you could program. This is pre-internet, obviously. So that's what got me excited about this idea of telling stories in a visual medium by seeing what was happening, seeing VHS and that you could create your own content. At the time, I was working for People magazine and I was writing about celebrities and sports stuff. And so I went from there to, you know, getting involved in the VHS world. And I started making exercise videos and understanding. And also, I was a pretty good writer. And I guess I'm still a pretty good writer. But writing is a solitary thing. You sit in a room. You know, in those days, I would smoke cigarettes and type stories and write for different magazines. And that's when I thought I discovered the world of production, which is writing based. Everything, you have to have scripts. You have to have story. It's about character. But you work in a team. You know, you're a director. There's many creative people involved and you're raising money and there's a business dynamic. So I got involved in doing exercise videos, writing about them as a journalist, but also producing them. So that's what kind of got me started. And that then led me eventually to working with ESPN. They needed videos made. I started making blooper videos for them. And that led to them contacting me when the X Games was just launching through relationships I had there. And I got involved with the X Games early on as an event, live event producer, as well as doing get involved in the television side. And so it's all just sort of rolled from there. Gotcha. Kind of so, complicated, I'm sorry. No, 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 you, you, you hit a lot of really important points there. So at your core, would you consider yourself a writer or a filmmaker? I would, I'm gonna give you a trick answer. I would consider myself someone who filmmaking is about solid writing. They go together, okay. at least in the work that I do. And what that really means is it's about ideas. It's not just pretty pictures and it's not letting the words overwhelm what you're doing either, particularly if you're doing like a VO or a narration. It's about combining the two, compelling storytelling. And then what I've grown into is how do you make spectacular imagery based around a structure? I really believe everything is about structure. And if you look at like the human body, we have a skeleton. That's what really holds us up. But you have your look, you've got your beard, you got the, this, the outside world, which is what a film is. Because in a movie, whether it's a documentary or a feature film, and I've done both, there is no internal world. There's only speaking and action and pictures, right? You can't think. Everything is what you see on the surface. So it's all about if you're going to make a long form piece or a short form piece, what is the structure how am I going to build this so then the story and the what you see on the outside becomes a beautiful thing? So in other words, even in the world of podcasts, you you have a structure with your questions, your research to then build around that structure for the story, which becomes the external world that we see. So it's really about my writing background gave me the discipline to realize I have to have an idea. What am I trying to get across? What is the message here? And then the words and the pictures come together to express that. 
Yeah, I think it, I mean, it's fascinating to a, to a guy like me. I love, I love to write. I love to read. I love to learn, you know, I, I love to do all those kinds of things, but you know, as, as I've kind of learned throughout the years with different people that I know that are involved in different aspects of some of the things that you do, you, you kind of learn how, what the intricacies are of inside of your business, right? Because there's, there's feature films that is different than documentaries, which is different than, you know, commercials, which is different. You know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah, all absolutely. these different. All... Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I have a background in fact-based things, for a number of years, I made fact-based TV movies, which, you know, I'd find the story. I dealt with the issues of securing rights. And that led me to, a, I'd done a few for the ABC and NBC, where, you know, I found the rights, owned the rights, then had a property that I could then leverage into a, produ a producerial role. And, and I was at the tail end of the, the rip from the headlines, make TV movies. And then really what happened was there was a writer's strike years ago, and then that opened the door to reality programming. And you don't really see the movies of the week the way when I was involved in doing that. But one of the stories I found was a true story about a guy who gets married. They fall in love with his, with his wife. They get married three months later. Three months later, they get in a car accident and he loses and she loses her memory in the car accident. And then th the question is, will they fall back in love? Is there really true love? That became the movie The Vow which grossed over $200 million at the box office. And so I had the rights. I was able to beat out 47 other producers, you know, in, in the whole process of battling for production and how you offer it and how you explain this dynamic in the real world and the world of, 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 of fact-based storytelling, which then eventually years later became, over, over 10 years later, became the feature film that went out there. So you're, what you're, you're right that each of these different things are completely different, but at the same time, they're all about an idea. And I do branded content as well for companies like Ferrari and Monster and other people. What's the messaging? How are you getting that messaging across? It all goes back to what's the idea. And that's what distinguishes my work a little bit from a lot of people out there have video cameras. A lot of people are out there pitching work. And I certainly don't get it all. But it's the little bit of that extra thing of understanding the agenda as well as the storytelling in the business environment that kind of distinguishes me. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing, unless I misunderstand it, I would consider you an independent filmmaker. Like you're, you're literally, yeah. Okay. So you're, you're owning and operating this business and you're going out there just like any other business, right? So you're doing it in the film world and writing documentaries, you know, fact-based films, all these kinds of things that you do, branded content, but so that's your product or your service, but you have to run the business just like anybody else. You have to go out and sell yourself, sell your sell to your client why they should be using you. Well, yes, absolutely. And one thing, you know, when I talk to other people in the industry, people will say, well, Paul, how did you get that job? Or why do you have that job? You know, I and other people who are maybe just as good at making the product, what they're not as good at is really the core of the business. I'm a salesman. Just my wares happen to be ideas and fulfilling people's need in the content area, whatever that may be. So as much as I've had you know, a fair amount of success, and obviously it's been acknowledged, the phone rings sometimes, but most of the time I'm coming up with ideas. Um, I'm developing them. It's a very inefficient business in the sense that 
you know, I have a list. We have a weekly meeting with my staff of all the projects and where they're at in the different stages. And I'm always coming up with new ones, but, you know, they get added onto the development list. Then you have to put your time investment in a deck or a teaser video. You know, what is the sales materials? It's all it is. And then finding the buyer for it and then doing it in the context of a budget and a number that works for both parties. One of my shortcomings, and my wife is, will point this out from time to time, <laughs> because I'm sort of more driven as a, a, a creative producer than I am as a businessman. I'm kind of like, I, once I get excited, even if it's a, I, I've been recently been working, doing a lot of work for a, a, a accounting firm out of Australia. On the surface, not the most exciting topic. It's not like the big wave stuff I do or the motorcycles or the vow. But once I got to understand this guy's business and how dynamic and what his unique formula was and how he's expanding to the U.S., um, I got excited. And then all of a sudden it's like, who cares about the budget? I've got to make the best possible thing I can. <laughs> but but I, I, as a rule, I'm very disciplined. I also kind of have a policy that unless the client moves the goalposts materially, I give a number and I always live by that number. I, I basically almost never, ever had to go back and go, oh, well, you know what? It actually costs more and, you know, play any games. This is the number. And the way it works is if I come in under that number, because I'm taking risk within reason, that it can be additional profit. If I go over, which also happens sometimes, you know, then I have to absorb that cost. So the budgeting process is, is extremely important. In fact, but at the same time, I know I have to make a quality product. So my, my one movie I did was called Unchained, the Untold Story of Freestyle Motocross, which did win an Emmy as the um, best sports film of the year a couple of years ago. And, you know, I had a number in for post-production. We were kind of getting close to that number. And I saw the edit and I just said, it's just not that good. It's not what I want. And I had some people go, well, it's OK. You know, it's good enough. And I was like, no. So I hired another editor, went through another round. You know, suddenly I was no longer my cushion was gone and I still wasn't satisfied. So I went out of the way and I went another got a third editor to refine it. And so financially, it was a little challenge. But on the other hand, having to win that Emmy, my client won an Emmy with me. The residual good vibes and halo effect of that is some of the best money I ever invested, because ultimately it's the quality of work. Nobody gets an award for coming in on budget. You just have to do that and you have to deliver creatively. Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I there are a couple of things that I that I heard there that I'll I'll just mention and then I'll I'll ask you a, a second question here. But you know, from a business standpoint, like I said, your product is what is what your product is, but you've been doing this for quite a while now. And what I heard were was you still have to hustle, right? I mean, you've got four Emmys on the shelf. You would think that people would be calling you all the time, but they're not. Right. So you still have to hustle. Yep. And then pricing and budgets matter. Both things are correct. Yes. I had the same feeling. I actually have a, a director I work with who got an Emmy for a project. And he just, he kind of got really bitter because he finally got this award and he goes, why isn't my phone ringing all day long? You know, I'm, I've done this. I've accomplished this. Everybody. And I just said to him, I don't really understand, but most of these clients are used to sitting back. The, the dynamic of the business is they're being pitched. That's largely how it works. I mean, it's a bit unfortunate. It would be nice. And again, the phone does ring sometimes. You know, it's not 100% outreach. I had a call this morning from a major client who seems to want to do something. 
but it's the nature of the business. You know, it's very competitive. In fact, it's gotten in some ways more competitive because you can get a red camera now for 20 grand, 30 grand and get a used one. And next thing you know, you've got a beautiful piece of technology that everything you shoot in slow-mo looks amazing. So it's easy to kind of appear to be a very high-end filmmaker, even if you're not. And obviously, I'm not the youngest guy out there. I work in a lot of youth sports and youth things. So I have to offer something different. But the discipline of budgeting, we spend a lot of time on that. I have a, a, an internal in-house person. That's where experience comes into play. I mean, just today, in fact, a guy called me about shooting a, a video in the Azores for a surf resort, a high-end surf resort. And, you know, I told him what it would cost. And I, and I actually said, you know what, you can't afford to fly me over there for what I know you guys want to spend. But I have a cameraman who I can send and I'll do the post-production and I'll direct it. And they go, we have X amount of dollars. And I said, well, it's not going to work. You know, what can I tell you? And ironically, because you have to be flexible, because I, I have a desire for this to happen because it gets me to go to surf trips. So I'd like to. <laughs> and I've always found that anything I do with surfing always comes back to me. So the cameraman literally called me while I'm getting texts as we're speaking here saying, oh, they have X amount of dollars, which is much less than his normal rate. He goes, I'm not busy that week because it's coming up in a week and a half or two weeks. He goes, I'll do it for X. Send me over there. So you have to sort of be flexible, and but you have to be disciplined. You have to know. And I said, he goes, well, you think I, I planned it as a three-day shoot. He goes, well, maybe I can get it done in two days. And I said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to, you know, I'll, I'll, you this is the number. And I believe, as my experience, it's going to take three days to shoot this thing, particularly if something goes wrong, gets rainy one day or something. So it's very important to, you know, to have the discipline, have the experience. And I also find it's really important, the way I do it anyways, I give my clients a line item transparent budget. I've seen other producers, they'll give you like a general, like cameramen, there'll be a flat number. You know, travel, there'll be a flat. I put it like my working line item budget is what I give my clients. And in the past, I've said, hey, if you want to, if you think I'm making money on all these different deals in here, because here's my fee and here's my production company fee, you can pay these people directly for all I care. I, I don't, I don't pad that part of the budget. I build in a fee and I build in, you know, my overhead and it's transparent. And that way, when they argue with you, you know, you can, you're not, you're not woogie fudging things. Just as a funny aside, I once was hired by a company to do a live one hour ABC car race and this guy the, the sponsor with the money had no experience in this at all and he goes you have to come in here i'm going through your budget item by item because i'm convinced you must be hiding money you're going to explain every single thing to me he said okay so we sat down we're going through the item and he goes and then there came power where you had to like have generator two generators to run the tv truck and he goes ah, i caught you i knew i would catch you he was a particularly grumpy guy and i go what do you mean he goes well, you know, electricity, you could just plug into the wall. Like, why do you need generators? And I said, it's a TV truck. There's 30 monitors in there. You cannot just plug this in. He goes, but why are there two generators? I finally convinced him. I go, here's what it is about. There is a less than a 5% chance that one of those generators will fail. So most likely one will work fine. He goes, but if that one goes down, you don't have a backup. Your, mil your $2 million budget goes out the window. So it's a $5,000 insurance policy. Go, you want me to pull it? I'll take it out of the budget. But understand one you know, small chance. And he goes, no, 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 keep it in there. So I have found being totally transparent, being honest. And then if something does happen where the client I had, I mentioned the accounting firm, we were supposed to go to Israel last April. 
And the night before, some versions of hostilities broke out back then. Nothing like what's going on now. And the night before, the guy said, we're pulling the plug because there's a bunch of students going on a trip to Israel. And he says, we're pulling the plug. And he wasn't familiar with production. He goes, we'll just roll this over for three months from now. And I go, no, 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 no. <laughs> Me and these people, we blocked out 10 days. We're freelancers. And, you know, if you look at the paper, you know, and I did, I don't typically do very complicated contracts. They do things kind of on a handshake. And I just said, hey, man, no, you're going to have to pay at least 50% as a kill fee for this. And he was like, That's, I don't understand. If I show, if I don't do a job, I don't get paid. I go, but I explained to him who these people were and how it works. So that's why I think being really communicative about budgets is critical. Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I agree. And I, I, I love that transparent pricing. I think that, you know, in your line of work, it, it would be easy to not be transparent. And then you're dealing with a lot more second guessing like you described and just makes your life easier. I've always found it better. I've had when I've when I've partnered with people, they go, no, no, don't tell them all that. You know, you can pad things in here and there. I just said, I just find it now. Everything is a conversation. I'm always wondering about, you know, which hotel and what's going on. If just if everything's transparent, it's just easier. And I'm very clear. Here's what I'm going to make. And the only variable is if I say I'm guaranteeing this budget, if I happen to come on under, well, I make a little extra money. But if I go over I've taken the risk away from the client. So most clients really appreciate that. And that's how I like to do it. Yeah. All right. So I want to switch to the branded content. But before I do that, let's talk about the Emmys. So you mentioned one of them is for Unchained, yep. which is a documentary about motocross, which I love. I raced amateur motocross as a kid. I kind of gave that up when I was about 23-ish. I actually sold my dirt bike at that point to pay for my honeymoon. <laughs> and, and have not owned a dirt bike since. So I do own a road bike now, but I have not owned a dirt bike since. Yeah, so that the first Emmy I got was for Unchained, the untold story of freestyle motocross. No, no, that was my second Emmy. And the reason there's four is two of them are from Unchained. One is for the best documentary. The other is for the best music. I wasn't the okay. musician, but as the producer and director, I also got an Emmy for that. Then the other one is for an ESPN 30 for 30, called Hawaiian, The Legend of Eddie Aikau. And I co-produced that with my wife. So one is mine and my wife is my partner and we're the producers together. So that's how there's four. Yeah. They weren't four separate projects. And we worked, my wife and I work as partners and she, she deserves her own, believe me, she contributed her own thing. The one for the Unchained, I was, I was at the awards ceremony and it was really interesting. It was, a, it's a sports Emmy, by the way, which mm -hmm. is, it's, it's, so it's not the prime time. It's not, I wasn't competing against Dancing with the Stars or something. <laughs> But there I was, and I've flown to New York. And, you know, my movie, Freestyle Motocross, is, is a fairly esoteric thing of guys backflipping motorcycles and crazy things and X Games. And a, a lot of it had to do with the crusty demons of dirt era. And I was up against these really prestigious films, documentaries about, you know, the Iroquois Indians and how they, you know, still played lacrosse to this day. I was actually also up against an evil Knievel documentary. And I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to win because motorcycle people will split the vote for that more than likely. And there was a couple of others. One was about women overcoming sexual harassment in, in basketball. And so I just didn't, I really had no expectations of winning. And I went there and my son was playing professional soccer on the East Coast. He came up to New York and we're sitting there in Lincoln Center in this beautiful venue. And they also, I had a really crappy seat. I was on the side in a folding chair. I wasn't even down 
you know, in the orchestra. <laughs> and so I'm just sitting there and I was videotaping it on my phone to show the people here we are and here's the things and here's the nominations. And again, I really was relaxed because there was no way I was going to win this thing. And the woman, I, I forget, a famous sportscaster goes and she opens the envelope and she says, you know, and the winner is Unchained, the Untold Story Freestyle Motocross. And I was on a little platform, again, in this terrible seats on the side. I jumped up. I almost fell. I had to be grabbed. The camera goes wild. You know, I, I was completely flabbergasted. I had no idea how to get down. So they were looking for me and I'm running around back there. And finally, some usher got me there. And I walk up onto the stage, had not prepared anything to say because I really had no, you know, and I look down and there's Michael Jordan. And there's Mike Tyson. There's Brent Musburger. All these icons in this world, <laughs> they're all staring up at me. And I'm holding this, which, as everybody says, much heavier than I thought. And really didn't know what to say. So I've kind of, and then when I finally, I've kind of cobbled some little speech together, which to this day is sort of embarrassing. And um, I assume I just go back to my seat. I just wasn't thinking. And I literally was that guy kind of walking off. And the tall girl in the gown comes and grabs me. No, no, no. You have to go in the back and you have to get your photos taken and you have to do the interviews. So and and it was really special because my son was with me. So he got to really experience it. My sister lived in New York, also was there. And we went to the restaurant across the street from Lincoln Center, one of these fancy places, and all the Emmy winners were there. So everybody's sitting there with all the room filled with the Emmys sitting on the tables and buying each other drinks and just having a wonderful night to have won that. So it is an accomplishment. In terms of when you mentioned brand entertainment, that movie was sponsored by Monster Energy, even though in the way they do it, they don't really put their name on top of it. It was all very subtle how it was done. But because the executives, I had made executive producers, they all got Emmys, right? So my client got to get a beautiful box shipped to them in the mail. And one of the funny stories is, the main guy who's the president of Monster, which, as you may know, is a hugely successful company, he decided, him and his wife, they had an Emmy party at their house the next night where they invited all their friends to come over in gowns and have an, an evening where they all got to do Emmy speeches. And to this day, my client, which, of course, I'm, you're always trying to service your client, my client has it on their shelf in their house. And there's a number of these people who are executive, who, by the way, totally deserve the the Emmys. I mean, they were the executive producers. They were involved creatively and they were involved funding wise. Without them, there's nothing. So yeah. I, this is by no means, there's nothing in, at all untoward about it. But for having a client every day when they go home and when their friends and neighbors come over, there is an Emmy sitting in their homes. And so when they think of Paul Taubleib and the next project and the relationship, you know, there's a tremendous amount of goodwill built in based on having They've got that same trophy sitting in their house. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it, they think about putting together a, a new documentary or some sort of branded content that they're going to sponsor. It would be hard to not think of, at least about giving you the option to do <laughs> whatever it is that they're wanting to do. I was actually just at the house of one of these EPs in Florida starting a new production, which is actually under production right now. A very interesting little project. And, you know, I walked in and I saw his Emmy and I had forgotten, you know, there it was on his foyer as everybody walks in. He's a very gregarious, uh, popular guy. So we're doing a project right now, just as a quick aside, and so that it has to do with fishing. And so there's a guy who is one of the best fishermen in the world in Key West, who over three five day periods is trying to set a new world record on a certain type of fish with a certain type of line. And so we have a remote crew following him for 15 days, shooting, filming in the Keys, 
And we have no idea whether in the 15 days he will catch a world record or he won't. So, and his backstory is also really compelling. So it's kind of an interesting, different project. We have no idea what's going to happen, but we're shooting away right now. Yeah, no, very cool. So, yeah. So, I mean, you got fishing, you got the motocross thing. So what, give us an idea of the types of brands that you work with day in and day out now. One of my favorite brands to work with, we've done about a half a dozen projects with them is Ferrari, which is far away, obviously, in some ways from the world of action sports, but it's not in the sense that the car is an athlete. So capturing the car, understanding it's the brand, understanding, you know, Ferrari is not Lamborghini, for example. They are very, very different brands. You know, Ferrari is much more of an exclusive club. Lamborghini is much more of a, you know, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, but Lamborghini is much more of like a nouveau riche kind of thing and a rapper and a rock star type thing. So when you we did a video celebrating 50 years of Ferrari where we had an actor play Enzo Ferrari and go through all these, have a, a lot of storytelling involved. And again, when you pick the cast, it's the right people who fit the Ferrari brand. And Ferrari takes their brand extremely seriously, you know? And it was funny when I went to do this one shoot, they were they said, we're going to show the first Ferrari and the current Ferrari high-end supercar. So we're standing there with these two cars on the first day and I'm leaning on the old one and I'm lo I look at the new one, the La Ferrari. I go, how much does that thing cost? And they go about $2.2 million. Well, what does this old one cost? Figuring, well, you know, whatever. $45 million. It was the original first ever 125S. There's only one guy in the world allowed to drive it. I got to go on a ride along with him. So with Ferrari, it was really understanding the brand, shooting in a way that felt. And also, we had one production. Again, I've done a series of different videos. I do mainly stuff when they need to shoot in LA or California. They obviously can produce a lot of stuff on their own in Italy. You have, as an example of complexity. So they said, there was a shoot done at a driving experience and they go, you really can't show the people's faces because some of these guys come and who their partners are, we don't really know. So shoot the cars and shoot the beauty. We shot the whole thing, but you know, these, they, in other words, it's a private event. I'm not saying anything untoward is going on, but these yeah. people, you know, want their privacy. So we get a note back. People from New York love it. The people in Italy go, wait a second, where's the smiling faces? I go, well, there are no smiling faces because you told me not to shoot the faces. And they go, we need smiling faces. So luckily, we had shot the people who worked there, the, the drivers and the staff people, and shot it in such a way we were able to cheat it. So we were able to give the sense of smiles and emotion. I think that video had 26 editorial revisions of a three-minute video. And you just have to realize, hey, the client gets what they want. You build it in. In that case... What I often do with my editors, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, is I say, here's a flat number. And I warn them. I go, there could be a lot of revisions. And, you know, but I go, I don't want to, you know, it's a flat number. And so in that case, I kind of got the better end of that deal. I've had other ones where I've done a flat number where the editor bangs it out. And really, I could, if I had day rated him, I would have been a little bit ahead. But I prefer to have the security of saying, you know, here's the number. Let's lock it in. And we both know what we're getting into. Yeah. But Ferrari is great. But Monster is the one I do most of my work for on a branded level, though I've worked for Jeep. I've worked for Anheuser-Busch. I've worked for Paramount Pictures. You know, the the thing that I've noticed the most is that people want branded content that doesn't look like branded content, that it's legitimate content, that storytelling, that the brand comes along behind it, not on the front of it. And that's how when I do the Monster stuff, it's there. 
you get it, it captures the spirit of the brand and then very subtle in terms of the actual logo integration. Yeah. Yeah, I think it I think it is a nice way to do it, right? I mean, the, the brand is is being allowed to speak for itself. You're feeling what you're feeling, but not really realizing that you're feeling it because of that brand that's on that's in that content. Right. And every every brand is different. You know, some brands like Ferrari is very, very hands-on creatively. They send people to the shoots, which was sort of a funny story. We were shooting on Big Sur once, and we had this car, the 456 GT, I believe it was, which is a super high-end race car version of Ferrari. So they said, we need to show that our brand also has women. So we need a woman driving the car. And I said, well, can I fake it? Like, we have a woman getting in. And they go, no, no, it has to be totally legitimate. And they said, we want to show that this car can drift and go get sideways. Now, Ferraris are designed with all kinds of electronics to make sure those wheels never break free. It is not yeah. like a Mustang, right? Yeah. They go, nope, you've got to get this car to drift on Pacific Coast Highway in Big Sur, where there's a cliff on one side and a mountain on the other. So we found a curve that looked good, but on pavement, it we turned off all the electronics. And there was a guy there, a mechanic, he goes, hey, we've turned off everything, but this car will not break free. So I found one spot where there was a bit of a shoulder. And I said, well, that's dirt. If we get the rear wheels on the dirt, it should skid a little bit. And they were adamant wanting that shot. So I said to the girl, the, the female driver, you know, get out there, come around, get the wheels and you'll skid a little bit. And then you get back on the pavement. And we actually came up with something where we took popcorn, sprayed it black because the, the, the dirt was very gray and plain. So we filled it with black popcorn, which wouldn't affect the car. So when it hit the dirt, you could see the spray and it would look like rocks, but it was just popcorn. So she goes in there, throws it one time, can't get it to break free, throws it another time. So she's now going to determine, I'm going to get this thing to drift. She comes in and just throws the wheel, steps on the brake, and she's on the dirt and the whole thing breaks free and is now going 60 miles an hour sideways down the PCH. It's the only car of its kind in America. One side is a 200 foot drop down. The other is the mountain, which the nose. And she's now fishtailing going down. And she's totally lost control of this car. And the guy from Ferrari is screaming like I can hear him. And she finally pulls it to a stop one inch from the edge of the not going over the cliff, but almost into the wall. Yeah. And everybody, of course, is, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And the guy is like, what are we going to do? You can't show the car you know, almost crashing. We have to make it look beautiful. So, but that's where the, my background in action came in as a director. I said, we're going to pick it up of her saving the car, go to an internal shot and then come back with a little fishtail of saving it. And he goes, there's no way you'll do it. There's no way this is going to work. But we edited it together. It worked perfect. The car goes sideways. She loses it. You get a little shake. She gets back on the pavement and then we worked it out. So that, that was, you know, work for Ferrari, but that's what you needed to do for the brand. Yeah. Yeah. The power of editing coming to life there. I, editing is, is the most, the least appreciated thing. I have an edit going on now on my new movie, which is the history of Supercross. And, you know, we struggled with trying to find the structure and lots of issues. And I just, you know, said, nope, let's bring in a top level guy. And they're sort of unappreciated. They have to have a weird personality where they have to be have a really strong creative vision. That's what you're paying them for. But also when the director comes in and goes, well, you've been working on that for six weeks. I don't really like it. Let's do this. And they can't help as people 
being invested in what they've done, but they have to also have that part of their personality where they go, okay, I got it. And they'll fight for their position, but it's a push and it's a, it's a little bit of a push and pull with editors, but they're the gene. They're, they're the, I can't tell you how much credit they deserve for my work. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's no doubt about it. One of my best friends, he actually passed away from cancer about 15 years ago now, but he was a film editor. He loved it. He loved the, he loved the process. He loved everything about it. You know, he got a bachelor's degree in film and, and, but loved the editing process and, and took it very seriously. They, they really do. They take their job seriously. They, they absolutely deserve the awards that they get when you guys receive those awards, because without them, you can't make such a beautiful product. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. And what a lot of people don't realize is because you're watching something and you're kind of just sitting back and watching and you look at my videos or anybody's videos, you know, there's like when, when I, when I have a wave break, what's the audio that goes with that? So the actual sound of a wave is kind of a murky, muddy sound. So we use bombs going off or when a surfer's on a wave, there'll be like the sound of a bird or a torpedo or, you know, other types of sound. So using sound design, particularly, which most people don't realize if your shot is in slow-mo, which a lot of action stuff is, the audio can't be in slow-mo, right? Because sound is in real time. So the audio you use is another distorted level, you know, of this. One of the things I always say to clients and to people is, you're really hiring me to tell a specific lie. You're not asking me to tell the truth because there is no truth. We're telling it. So if, if I walk into a room, if I'm going to shoot your picture of you, behind you are pictures. I can't, there's awards. Is that yep. the important part of my shot? What decisions am I making? Is, are you in a bedroom and then right next to you is a bed? I have no idea. <laughs> I, as a storyteller, I might want to move the camera over here to see what's over there. But you're making choices. And also, a lens is not an honest thing. And you know, A lens is not your eye. You're making a decision. We're let, we're both right now on shitty lenses, which have no depth of field, and they just everything's in focus, which is kind of how your eye works. But there's still curvature in that lens. So my point is, we're making decisions from day one in terms of lighting, in terms of style, in terms of what you want to capture. And the other thing I like to say to my clients in explaining what I do is, the worst word in my business, or the most misleading word, is the word shooter. Because cameramen like to be shooters. They use that phrase, I'm going to go shoot today. And a camera doesn't shoot anything. A Mm. camera catches, right? It's light coming in. So I say to my camera guys, think of yourself not as an aggressive person aiming at something. Because then you tend to center look things and you tend to look at your target. You're not doing that. Like in your image, unlike same as the image that I'm doing here. It's not by accident. These are over my shoulder, right? Yeah, right. decision I made. And to capture everything in this picture, the same way you've made a decision to have this background back there. So if a shooter looks at it that way, you're taking in everything and everything in your image is part of what you're trying to tell me. So being responsible for that, I think is really important and it makes a better product. Your cameraman doesn't have that aggressive bang, bang, bang. I'm aiming at things. It's I'm creating a world, which is what we want them to do. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's really more about capturing versus shooting, right? That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. Yeah. Well, Paul, I, I, I really appreciate 
your perspective on things. I think that what you do, you know, on the surface, people would think, well, why are, why are you having a filmmaker on a, on a business podcast? Right. But, but the reality is you're operating a business just like any other business out there. You're, but you're choosing to have your business be about telling brand stories or telling other stories for people. You're that medium, I guess, that helps them to be able to tell that story and to get their brand out there. And it's an extremely important part of any business owner's journey is making sure that their brand is being portrayed the way that they want it to be portrayed. The other thing I would say in terms of anybody, you know, everybody's in the content business now, which is a good thing and a bad thing. But, you know, you got to have an Instagram, you've got to have a TikTok. My wife and son both work in the TikTok business world as personalities. And they're very different mediums. But you, you basically can't not have some kind of a presence. Where I come in, I am not the answer to all the content problems. But if you're looking for real storytelling, like I said, I have an accounting firm that we're doing in-depth storytelling. For example, this particular gentleman, he's really into books. He's written many books. And his whole life is based upon this idea that people give away business advice for free. The smartest, most successful people in the world. You can read from Buffett to whoever, anything you want. And he's just built his whole business around studying other businessmen. So I said, why don't we do a book club? You're really into books. You're really articulate and passionate about it. So we made 20 videos of him holding up a book saying, here's how this, why this book is so amazing, why you should read it. And so it's a soft sell of his business. Totally passionate, meant to be done a very clean. I said, we're going to do this with no edits. I want it, I don't want to do editing. I don't want to be fancy. I want it to seem like you doing talking about books in two minutes or less. And so it was easy to do. And he loves it. He says it's brought him a lot of attention. He's personally satisfied because he loves books. And so it's finding and tailoring what you need for your business on a local level or on a national level. But you can't, I don't see how you can be in this world and not have some kind of content, you know, content presence. And I would say my sales pitch is if you want something that someone who's not just doing what they want to do, but is listening to you, like that's what I do is what, what need are you trying to fill with this content, right? You know, what goal do you want? Monster on some of their content wanted like their commitment to NASCAR. I know one of the other movies I did documentaries that also won many, many awards did not win an Emmy, which I thought it was going to, by the way, (laughs) it's called blink of an eye about the story of Michael Waltrip and Dale Earnhardt, which most few people knew. It's a very powerful story. We're now developing it into a feature film. Um, I'm working with a producer, the same producer I made The Vow with. But, you know, why would Monster sponsor a movie about an event that took place in 2001, largely, when they didn't even really exist? And how did they get their branding into it? So if you watch the movie, Michael Waltrip has a small Monster logo on it. In the background, there's a little bit of branding that is integrated into car hoods so it's all very subtle but it's all there but they did it because they wanted to show the sport of nascar we're really committed to the to the to the sport we're, we're not here just to take we're here to give we think the story should be shared when i did unchained the star of unchained funded by monster a publicly traded company is travis pastrana who is a red bull athlete yeah and he was integral to the story and they said there's no way to tell it about it but i found lots of ways to make monster be the dominant brand. 
uh, the Big Wave series that I have out right now that just played in the uh, Byron Bay Film Festival. And we just got word this morning that it was accepted at the Palladino de Oro Sports Film Festival coming up in Sicily in a month. You know, it's got a number of monster athletes, but Kai Lenny, who's arguably the best big wave surfer in the world, he's a Red Bull athlete. He's in it. That adds credibility instead yeah. of like monster wall to wall, which may start making you as a consumer think, oh, I'm getting kind of sold here. Like, God, they're shoving this logo down my breath, my, my, my throat, whether they know it consciously or not. Monsters like just build it in subtly, which is different than how Red Bull does it. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. You know, so everyone is has a little bit of a different, you know, but it, it's understanding that brand and, and coming up with a compelling story. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, it, it's so we've been doing this podcast for about three and a half years now. You know, we've got over 160 episodes in, in the can, so to speak, and and they've been impactful. There's no doubt about it for the for the entrepreneurs that we invite on. They have that content that they can share and use however they choose to. And it helps to kind of drive their brand. And and obviously, by extension, it drives our brand. But we the feedback that we've received recently from a lot of different people that have either been on the podcast or that we know professionally is that there's this appetite for additional advice. Right. So we've shared your story and we've definitely shared some advice and different things that you do and people can glean advice, but they they want this shift to advice. And for us, we look at it and say, okay, well, that might actually shift what we're trying to do here. Right. I mean, we're trying to prop up the entrepreneurial community. It's something we believe in, the backbone of the American economy, and and small business owners really, really, really drive this economy in the in the country. Mm -hmm. But now our focus may shift to, okay, let's still push that out there. Let's help these small business owners to do everything that they can to continue to drive that economy and find success and to provide employment and all those sorts of things. But now it may end up actually driving more business to us, right? As the, as the hosts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's okay. Of course, that wasn't the intent when we, when we launched it. And we have certainly picked up some business along the way, the last three and a half years from it, but it's, it's a shift, right? And so now we're having to, to do exactly what you talk about monster doing and how do we subtly pull our brand in there? How do we do like your Australian accountant, you know, is doing to where we're sharing advice and have that drive people want wanting to know more about what it is that we do and why we do it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I find it very intriguing what you're what you're doing and have done over the years. And it, it all goes back. And I hear this phrase a lot, actually, to the point, to the degree that I find it kind of annoying. I'm a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. You know, we're all sort of storytellers, but there is really an art to storytelling. It's not just I'm a good bullshit artist. And like I said, it goes back to structure. It's understanding that it's in my business, marrying visuals and powerful stuff. It's discipline, you know, in, in how you run your business. And, and the other thing is it's giving real value. I mean, it's, it's, you know, impactful storytelling. And the other thing that, that I would say that I'm good at is drawing when I, when I'm in your, in your chair, um, you know, interviewing people to get them to really share and understanding how to ask questions like you do very well to draw out, you know, help people give, share the information. A lot of people have it, but if you don't frame the question right, if you're not listening correctly, you don't, you know, and listening really is the key to interviewing. 
And yeah. a lot of times I'll say to someone, well, you said that, but I can hear you're really saying something else. What are you really trying to get at and pulling that out of people? And then they find, wow, this is almost cathartic. But the other thing is it really gets more information if you can get people to really share what they're really thinking. And then it's more value for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about it from, from the aspect of it, it's pretty easy to tell whether you're sitting in a, in, in an interview like this, or somebody's trying to sell you something, right. Where you can tell the difference between if they're actively listening and allowing that to guide the conversation and the next question versus they're sitting there thinking of what's my next question right? Because I've got a list of questions. <laughs> what am I going to ask next? And, and it, and, you know, you can just, you can see the difference and, and feel the difference. It's funny you say that because, you know, I've done many, many interviews and I've many times I've had people say, Hey, could you send over the questions in advance? And I tell them I would, but I don't have a list of questions. I'll do research and I'll have notes of topics. And I usually I'm very familiar with what I want, but I go, I don't have questions. I, I sit down, I have a place I want to start. And it just flows. I kind of know what I'm trying to cover. But I have found if you have a list, I once was hired by an Academy Award winning producer. So can't really say he didn't know what he was doing. Big, yeah. big company just as a director. And they were very formal. And it was, it was sort of a little disappointing in, in, in retrospect in that they said, we work on, we want to see your questions. We want to know. And I kept saying, well, I know you guys are the big dogs. You won an Academy Award and you've done, this particular guy has done 40, 50 major documentaries as mm -hmm. well as dramatic stuff. I just said, look, man, I, I, I just don't work that way. I do the research. I have my notes. I keep track. But, and they were like adamant. No, no, you have to submit the questions to us in advance as the director. And I, I did it. I know, I know how to do it. And I felt that, and I had a guy standing over my shoulder and he had the list in front of him. And I was would start going off and wandering and like you said, listening to um, what the person was saying. And they were, I had the guy, oh, get back on track. Uh, you, what, you get it to the next. And I, I felt that I, I didn't get to do the job as well. They hired me based on my work, but didn't really let me do the work the way I do it because it was just foreign to them. And, and I will say, sometimes it kind of doesn't work out. It's like, I'll finish and you're going, I forgot to ask him these three things that I meant really important. I have to yeah. go back or work around them. But it's just, I, I'm an intuitive interviewer is how I work. But it did, it was one time and uh, I could tell when the product was done, they were like, well, thank you, Paul. And they, they, the shows aired, they were successful, but they didn't call me back. And that was one that came in over the transom. Though the, you know, you talk about how I pitched work. This was a company in New York and I really, really wanted to work for them. So they called me up and they said, oh, you're one of a number of people we're talking to and uh, they said, it's unfortunate you're not here in New York. It would be nice to meet you, but don't worry, you know, and hang up the phone. A couple of days later, I called back. Oh, just so happens I have a job, a visit in New York. I'm going to be in town next week. They, oh, great. That really helps. Come and I had no plans to be there, but I yeah. wanted the job bad enough. I was willing to spend the money. I made it sound like no pressure on them. I'm going to be in town anyways. I have some, you know, and they all come by and I ended up getting the gig and it was a very, it was despite the fact that it didn't lead to more, it was, it's great to have done it. And I went to the degree of risking my money to fly to New York strictly to pretend I had shown up in New York. Yep. So, you know, that, you know, and setting the tone that way, they didn't feel like pressured. And we had a great conversation and I literally said, Oh, you know, I can't stay too long. I've got to go to this other thing I'm here for. So I made it, I, I, I produced my own interview in other words. And that sometimes that's what you have to do.
And pitching yeah. is my business. You know, I have a project now, many projects, and you call up and and the thing is, which maybe relates to you to the entrepreneur, if people don't hear the passion in my voice, that I am going to get this done, that I really care, that it may just be accounting or it might be a old car or whatever it is, they want to hear that you really, really care. And for me, the only way to do it is to make yourself really, really care. Now, I'm enough of a pro, I can kind of walk out and go, okay, I'm done. But when I'm in there, if somebody has a small business or a big business, they want to feel you care the same way they do. And if you come in there clinically, oh, you know, I'm a professional, don't worry. It doesn't work. Yeah. And yeah, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. I see it day in and day out in my business. I've done something similar to what you said. Oh, yeah, I'm, I actually have plans to be there, you know, such and such, you know. And if it's important enough to you to take that swing to try to get that job, yeah. then that may be something that you just need to do to, to try to make it work. We had a client once, a different car. I can't say their name because the we we had we came in through a celebrity, and then the celebrity tried to sue the client, and they were like, "We need to talk to you about this." And they were up in Northern California, and I said, "Look, inadvertently, through no fault of my own, a big problem was created." And I said, "I'm going to fly up there. I want to meet face to face and help you solve this." And they were like, "Well, we we don't really have a budget." I go, "No, no, no. I don't expect to get paid. Through circumstances, none of us could control." It was an idea that I came up with that this celebrity decided was his idea. And he went mm -hmm. to the manufacturer. You can't work with him. You have to go with me. And I'm going to sue you. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And they and I actually helped them find a lawyer because it was a big mess. And then later they hired me. They go, hey, man, that was so nice that you came up there. Help us solve the problem. Because one of their people had said the wrong thing to this person. And I was like, no, no, we're in this together. It'll pay off in the long run. I mean, ultimately, you're, you want to create an emotional bond with your client. They want to feel that you feel what's going on. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's, yeah, I think that's your version of what we say internally at our practice is serve the client first, last, and always, and let the rest take care of itself. Right. Well, I have you compensation here. and all that. Let me, so. since I, I know you have a podcast, why don't you, what is your business? What is it that you do? Let me hear what, what is, what else do you do? Yeah. So, I mean, our, our day-to-day -day business is called Backbone Planning Partners and at our core, we're a wealth management firm, but we specialize in working with business owners only. And so the largest asset that most business owners have is their business. Right. And so we strategically plan inside of their business with them. Let's put some things in place. Let's put together a 10 year plan. How do we back that to a one year plan to a quarterly plan so that we put you on 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 the right track so that 10 years from now, assuming that's your date, 10 years from now, the business is where you want it to be. And we're ready to actually sell that business or transition it to a family member or whatever that looks like for you so that you can you know, make some money from that, so to speak, and move on to the next phase of your life. So that's, that's kind of in a nutshell, what we do. So now I'm looking at, you know, you're, you're called tycoons of small business. I don't see anything in your picture that would tell me about that. Is there, is your, you know, does the podcast, do you need, do you need to, like, if I, if you were, if I was producing and I say, how do we integrate that more into what you're doing? So you're subtly selling while you're also doing all of this, like even, yep. you know, a logo in the background, the wealth management, you know, I don't know. That's just, you know, yep. 
that, that is all part of the plan going forward. So we, our industry is heavily regulated. So we've had to be very careful in the way that we've done that because the podcast is separate from the, the financial planning business. But we, we have some, some steps that we've taken recently to be able to kind of do it differently going forward. So you will see an introduction of that where you'll see the logo of the podcast and the logo of our wealth management firm in the background. Just as an aside, just I know we're talking here, but my <laughs> son, my other son, who's not a, has built, he works for a an accounting firm, not not the guy I work with, but a, 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 it's a retirement oriented small business that is booming. Hmm. And what's interesting is he's a partner in a small company, and his whole business, which I think would be very fascinating for you, is driven by doing YouTube videos, where he talks about retirement, early retirement, retirement planning. And then people call up and, you know, they have to, he has it all automated and he's actually taking his CFP test in a week. Oh, wow. So he's in the middle, middle of all that, but he has built a new model for financial management by, by getting business through the internet and how oh, it's wow. booming. And he, and he, he and it's, it's, it's a different form and, and he's very young at 26, but yet he's doing retirement planning, which you would think would be a difficulty, but he's finding People want young retirement planners because they want to be around in 20 years. So, um, but it's all yeah. largely internet based. And so I think it'd be fascinating to hear how they've done that and growing yeah. very, very, very rapidly. Yeah, very cool. But at the end of the well, day, it is a business. You know, I am running a business. I have to make the numbers work. And in my case, put aside my passion for doing it to make sure it's financially viable. Yeah. Well, Paul, I, I really appreciate the time. Let's let's kind of have you at the end just just tell people how to get a hold of you, right? There are business owners that listen to the podcast and maybe they could benefit from the branded content that you put out or just want to connect with you and see what what you've been able to do and how you've done it. So how would what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? I would say go to my website first. Unfortunately, my name's a bit of a mouthful. You can see the work we've done. There's lots of examples, and that's taubleebfilms.com which is T-A-U-B-L-I-E-B films.com. And then my email, and, and that's where you can see the resume. You can see lots of our work. Um, you can see pictures of all the different things we've won. There's a whole list of all the awards, many, many film festivals and others. And then, or email me directly, paul at taubleefilms.com, paul at T-A-U-B-L-I-E-B films.com. And one thing in that vein, and my sales pitch also is, sometimes people come to me, I had this need. I have no idea what the content is to fill the need. That's something I'm happy to do development work with. Hey, okay, how do we create it? What would work? Like the book club guy ended up doing book clubs when he really wanted to sell an accounting firm, which now sells him as an accounting firm, as an expert. So, and Monster is a whole different thing. And for, so it's like, here's my need. And maybe it's small. We are also a pretty small and nimble company. So don't think you're too small. We can sometimes do things at a very fast, cost-effective basis, as well as on a large scale. So if you need content, we can make it. Very cool. Once again, thanks, Paul. Look forward to staying in contact. And uh, I'm going to have to look some some things up too. The Unchained, I remember hearing of it, but I know I haven't watched it. So I have to go back and watch that. It's free on YouTube right now, actually. Very cool. All right. Thanks, thanks so, much. so much, Paul. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. 
Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.